Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and build their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. There has obviously been... Plenty of discussion uh, over, well, uh, a few decades now about copyright and the internet and how the two function together. Uh, but today I wanted to specifically explore something that I don't think has actually received that much direct attention over the years and which I think is actually really, really important uh, concerning how copyright holders have sort of aggressively moved down the internet stack in terms of targeting how they take down uh, what they believe to be infringing materials, so it's not always uh, infringing, which is potentially part of the problem. Now, to have this discussion, I think it's actually important to understand a few sort of very quick things about both how the internet works and also how copyright law works. So as a very, very quick and simplified overview, uh, when we talk about the stack or the internet stack, we're generally referring to the combination of technologies and services that enable you to view a website or do anything else online. The sort of traditional simplified setup of the stack would include the application layer on top, transport layer beneath that, and then the wider internet beneath that, and then the network interface at the very bottom. Now, within each of those, there are a number of different players as well, and you can divide the stack up into a number of uh, other levels. But to simplify this, if you're dealing with any particular website or anything on the internet, what's important to note is that there are many different parties who are actually involved in making that website or service possible. Obviously, there's whoever is providing the website itself, but there may be third-party systems or libraries that can enable the site, such as Node.js. There can be third-party services that help keep a site running, like Google Analytics or an ad server. There are also payment processors, including PayPal and the credit card companies. There are security tools, like network certificate providers, uh, or, sorry, uh, security certificate providers. Uh, going down a level, there may be the hosting company, and that company may run its own servers that can co-locate them somewhere else, or as is increasingly common, just use servers on a cloud platform like Amazon AWS or Microsoft Azure. Now, going down another level, you have internet backbone providers, and then another level, you have domain the, the whole domain name system, uh, including the various registrars who manage uh, and control, you know, who who controls any particular website and where the traffic goes. And, uh, of course, there's uh, ICANN, uh, who ties all of the domain name system set up together. Now, uh, if we look at copyright, traditionally the system was designed to go after the actual infringer, the person who is distributing the infringing works. But increasingly, rather than go after those individuals who may be perhaps difficult to find, we've seen copyright holders targeting many of those intermediaries that go down the stack. So often it goes further and further down the stack as they try and track down any way to get uh, certain content or certain websites or certain services offline. And so as they go down the stack, they demand that certain sites and services uh, not be reachable at all uh, or that they be you know, cut off solely based on accusation that parts of a site may be used for infringement. Now, this raises an awful lot of questions, and I wanted to talk about them and discuss them with an expert and sort of figure out what all of this means and what the implications are. So today on the podcast, we have a returning guest, uh, which is law professor Anne-Marie Bridie uh, from the University of Idaho College of Law and also an affiliate scholar at Stanford Center for Internet and Society. Uh, last time she was on the podcast, we had a great discussion about the perils and unintended consequences of trying to regulate internet platforms. Uh, but this was a tangent that we almost talked about as well, um, but it was it's a, a really important one and an interesting one, and I thought uh, it would be good to have an entire podcast on it. So Anne-Marie kindly agreed to come back on and discuss this topic as well. So welcome back. Thanks. Good to be here. 
Cool. So uh, I gave a very, very simplified <laughs> overview uh, of 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 this issue. Um, but let's let's maybe talk about some examples of of what you know what we mean when we talk about targeting down the stack and and going after um, uh, you know other other third parties as opposed to the sort of top level website that most people think of when you talk about DMCA notices. Sure. So I've written a lot about this phenomenon under the rubric of DMCA plus enforcement, right? And by DMCA plus enforcement, I mean going beyond what the DMCA requires, you know, either by providers that are covered by the DMCA, like UGC platforms, like YouTube and Twitter, uh, storage lockers, broadband providers like Comcast uh, and, uh, you know, Cablevision, mm -hmm. AT&T, uh, and search providers like Google and Bing. Um, but also by providers that fall outside the ordinary scope of secondary copyright liability. So these would include ones that you already mentioned when you were describing sort of how the stack works, uh, payment processors, ad networks, um, CDNs or content delivery networks like Cloudflare, um, and also domain name uh, service providers like domain name registrars and uh, registry operators. And so going back to around 2008, uh, under pressure from both copyright holders and also trademark holders and the government, uh, all different types of providers have been entering into voluntary agreements to do more than the law requires to fight online piracy uh, and counterfeiting. So I would say over the last decade or so, there's been a real shift in the rhetoric around intermediary enforcement, right? We've gone from talking about legal liability to now talking about responsibility. I mean, we've seen the same thing going on um, with respect to content regulation in other areas like hate speech, mm -hmm. um, you know, and harassment and all of that. Like, wh whereas we used to talk before primarily in terms of, you know, what uh, platforms could be liable for doing or not doing, uh, we've now really changed uh, to, to start talking more about, you know, responsibility and platforms being good citizens. Um, and so the idea now, I think, is that intermediaries who are in a position to help prevent infringement uh, should really be assuming a kind of duty to do it even where the law uh, doesn't require it. And, and that really has been a fairly monumental shift uh, that has happened in the last, I would say, 10 years. And I think people who follow these things closely uh, have seen it, right? But, but folks who maybe uh, don't follow it as closely haven't really... Uh, sort of noticed it and, and sort of understood what profound effect it, it has really had on the enforcement landscape. Yeah, and, and we've definitely seen that, you know, I mean, I think it's sort of, it started with focusing on like ad networks. I mean, I, I can't remember exactly when, or at least that's my, that's what I remember. I could be wrong on that. But that was the first one that I noticed that suddenly instead of just targeting the sites themselves, suddenly, um, you know, they were actually reaching out to ad networks and saying, like, how can you possibly put ads on this site? And then, you know, probably soon after that, payment processors as well. Um, and, and basically just trying to, you know, uh, effectively starve sites that they that that copyright holders felt were, were bad actors. Right. So this was, you know, this was what was at the time called the follow the money approach. Right. Um, and, and Google actually was a big proponent of the follow the money approach, um, you know, uh, in part because I think it would take a little bit of pressure off of search uh, mm -hmm. and YouTube. Um, and so the so we had two different agreements, the payment processor agreement in 2012 and the ad network one in 2013. So super close in time. They were both being negotiated, I think, around uh, the same time, you know, and there's not a lot of information available about what takedowns under these protocols look like and, and what the volume of stuff being taken down is. And we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, you know, but just one interesting point, like for the payment processor protocol, uh, in 2013, they reported that they had taken down 7,500 sites. So it really is a non-trivial, I mean, obviously there are billions of sites on the web, but 7,500 uh, sites, um, and I think there were something like 25,000 different payment channels associated with those sites, right? So sites will take a variety of cards. Usually they'll take PayPal, MasterCard, Visa, and each one of those is a different payment channel. Um, you know, so lots of takedowns by payment processors, uh, also um, by ad networks. Um, so two separate voluntary agreements uh, involving, you know, separate sets of intermediaries. Um, but largely pushed by the International Anti-Counterfeiting Coalition. 
um, mm -hmm. which is a big trade association that uh, represents a, a huge sort of swath of different right holders, right? So Nike and the NFL, pharmaceutical companies, movie studios, video game publishers, uh, all of these different, you know, RAAA and uh, its member companies, uh, all of these different corporate right holders are sort of under the umbrella of the International Anti-Counterfeiting Coalition. So anytime one of these agreements goes through, right, all of those different uh, copyright industry stakeholders uh, sort of get the ability to, uh, to, to, to sort of give inputs into these enforcement systems. Right. And so, you know, one of the concerns that I think both of us have is, is kind of um, when you have these sort of private agreements, um, it, it sort of leads to two big concerns, or at least in my head, it leads to two big concerns or maybe more, but um, sort of transparency and, and due process um, are, are kind of the big ones in, in my mind. You know, when you have these agreements that sometimes the agreements themselves are not entirely clear or transparent, and then kind of what is happening uh, behind the scenes is not entirely transparent, which of course then leads to the due process concerns, right? Right. So there's definitely less transparency. And I can give you an example from just last week. Uh, so just last week, the IACC announced that it was entering into a private enforcement agreement with URID, uh, which is the registry uh, operator for the .eu hmm. uh, generic top-level domain. And when I heard about this, I contacted URID and I explained to them that I'm a law professor and that I do research on intermediary copyright liability and enforcement. Uh, and I said that I had done work on a number of agreements before, including the payment processor agreement um, and uh, another agreement that the MPAA entered into in 2016 uh, with a registry operator called Donuts. Um, and so I've published fairly extensively on these on these DMCA plus agreements. And I explained to them that I was interested in, you know, getting a copy of the memorandum of understanding uh, that they had signed with the IACC. Right. And generally, the memorandum of understanding is the legal document that memorializes these kinds of agreements. They're sort of they're contractual or quasi contractual. Mm -hmm. um, and the answer I got from them was a big no. Um, <laughs> I was told that the MOU is subject to a non-disclosure agreement, but of course, they're the ones who decided <laughs> that it would be subject to a non-disclosure. It's like, we're really sorry. Our hands are tied. We tied our hands, so our hands right. are tied. Um, so, so wait, uh, wait, wait. Let me, can I just explore that for a second? So sure. let, let, just to reinforce this, right? So this is this is a big agreement between this this anti-counterfeiting coalition, which includes all these organizations that you mentioned earlier, and this sort of you know major top-level domain uh, registry operator who handles all of the .eu stuff, and they're agreeing to take down content under some basis, and they refuse to say what that real basis is. Right, exactly. <laughs> right, and so I said, well, okay, so if you can't give me the MOU, maybe you could just give me like a list of bullet points or some kind of fact sheet, right? Because right. I, I had been able. I mean, it's 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 been interesting because there has been decreasing transparency in these agreements over time. Uh -huh. Right. So the first major one that I looked at was the copyright alert system, which you may remember. Yeah. Um, was the six the, strikes system. Yeah. The six now defunct. Right. So right. It, it went out of existence in 2017. Um, but at the time uh, they negotiated the MOU in 2011 uh, and they actually made the whole MOU available to the public, the actual legal document, which I thought was a pretty brave thing for them to do. Yeah. Um, they, so, they were they were transparent. They were transparent in yeah. a lot of ways. There was some stuff they weren't transparent about, but I, I would say that that was, of all of these agreements, sort of the best faith effort I've seen to actually engage the public and to sort of let the public know what was going on. And, and that might just be because that agreement had a lot more impact on members of the public, like direct yeah. impact that would be visible to them, right? So members of the public would be getting notices under this agreement. Right. Um, you know, and so I don't know how much the transparency there was tied to the fact that they just realized that that was an agreement that had extraordinarily broad um, public reach. You know, but, yeah. but fast forward to 2016, right? MPAA and Donuts uh, announced in a press release that they've got this trusted notifier agreement. So I did the same thing that I did with your ID. Uh, I contacted someone at Donuts and I said, hey, 
you know, if, if these are voluntary best practices and you guys believe they're best practices for enforcement, can I see them? You know, I explained to them that I was a researcher and that I focus in my work on these kinds of agreements. And at first I got a big no from them in the same way that I did um, through your ID. But I did know some folks at the MPAA and, you know, was trying to just explain, hey, can I have a copy of this? And finally they, they did release like a fact sheet. Mm-hmm like what they called a template or something. And so I, I could see and I could write about sort of some of the particulars of the agreement and burdens of proof and all of that stuff. Um, I was able to get the one uh, for the um, payment processors from the International Anti-Counterfeiting Coalition. Mm -hmm. um, but that one I think may have, they may have given to me sort of accidentally. <laughs> like I think they just didn't realize at the time who I was. Um, and so I got that. Um, and there used to be a lot of public information available on the IACC's website uh -huh. about that protocol. But shortly after I published the article about it, all of that information got sucked behind a oh, password wow. wall. Wow. Um, and so much of it was was deleted. Um, and so now the year ID agreement, I, I can't even get like a list of bullet points for. Wow. Um, so it, it really has been a, a slide into darkness uh, with respect to transparency and, and the public's ability to, to understand what these documents are about. And and just to give some some history here, because I think this is actually kind of interesting is, you know, a, sort of. You mentioned sort of the first of these agreements happened in 2012, and there was another one in 2013, and then we've had all these other ones since then. You know, this was actually uh, a major push by by the the Obama administration, the people who were were involved in, in copyright stuff. After SOPA failed, it seemed like there was this drumbeat for like I forget the the phrase that they used, but these sort of private agreements to sort of you know basically like stop. You know, Congress is not going to be able to pass a copyright law. So, what if we just get like various big players to to agree to stuff? Uh, and they sort of, or at least the folks that I spoke to, um, who were involved in copyright enforcement within the Obama administration, sort of looked at this as like this brilliant compromise. Um, that if we just get the you know all these different big players to come together and reach these private agreements, we'll solve all the problems without having to deal with the messy process of of congressional uh, regulation. Right, all those terrible like <laughs> you know all that awful democratic policy making, yes. right, and political <laughs> process. It just gets in the way of getting anything done. Yeah, you know it's interesting because if you if you go back and you look at the types of intermediaries that would have been covered by SOPA and PIPA, pretty much there have been voluntary agreements for every single one that have mm -hmm. achieved what SOPA and PIPA wanted to achieve, right, but without any kind of public law right. on the book. So we really do sort of have through the back door, through these private agreements, you know, all of the enforcement mechanisms that right holders were trying to get in SOPA and PIPA. And it really, you know, it was the Obama administration, right, working primarily through two different uh, sort of instrumentalities in the executive branch. One of them is the Office of the Intellectual Property Enforcement Coordinator, IPEC, mm -hmm. um, and the other is the U.S. Trade Representative, right? Which right. in terms of, you know, um, foreign trade agreements sort of uh, advocates for the interests of U.S. businesses and uh, and right holders. And so if you go back through the years and you look, you know, every year IPEC does an annual report and every three years they have to do a joint strategic plan where they kind of lay out what the priorities are for the organization for the next three years. So if you look at the annual reports, the joint strategic plans, and then if you look at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative at the, uh, the special 301 notorious <laughs> pirate markets list, yes, the uh, which basically, you know, is submitted by the RIAA and the MPAA to the U.S. Trade Representative and the U.S. Trade Representative more or less just publishes it. Yep. Um, you know, they have over time, you can see them sort of targeting each of these different categories of intermediaries, right? And so that's sort of where the pressure, uh, where the pressure was coming from. Yeah. You know, and, and also a little bit from the USPTO, um, mm -hmm. you know, which, which has responsibility for international intellectual property policy making. Um, you know, at some point, I think it was maybe 2015, they actually held a hearing um, where they were uh, taking information on how exactly the government could enforce these private 
agreements, right? Like how could the government make sure that these voluntary best practices agreements are being uh, enforced? And I read a bunch of the submissions for that particular uh, hearing or roundtable or whatever it was. And I can remember reading one from the CCIA, mm -hmm. uh, the Communication and Computer Industry Association. Is that what it is? But it's basically the trade group that represents Google and a lot of internet companies. Uh, and they were saying, look, you know, if these are really private agreements, what role is the government supposed to play in enforcing them? Like the government right. doesn't uh, you know, so it's just we, we have like, civil courts for, for a reason. <laughs> exactly. Like, so the question was, you know, are these private agreements? Is this public law? They really occupy this sort of strange kind of middle ground where they're sort right. of uh, like the government is the midwife for them. Right. But they are born <laughs> into the private sector. Right. Um, and it's just a really it's just a really strange kind of unclear situation in terms of you know where where this law comes from yeah and and i always wonder too where it's like you know these the, the agreements are being conducted and and set up between sort of these large organizations and i always wonder like what happens when you have sort of you know a, an upstart or a, a, a or a startup <laughs> that is you know sort of growing up in this space that is not a part of the agreement suddenly starts to you know become big are they suddenly like read into this agreement and you have like this secret meeting where suddenly you know, they're, they're sort of pressured to to sign on the dotted line to be a part of the agreement or, or you know how does that even work yeah so i mean i guess the little players are impacted on both sides of these agreements right so you have little players who are the little player copyright holders mm -hmm. and trademark holders and then you have the little players and i think these are the ones you're talking about who are sort of the on the internet startups right, right. The, the edge startups and i think you know with respect to what happens to the the edge startups you know with respect to what their obligations are right because they're not parties to these agreements right right they're just still governed by public law Right, which is pretty much the DMCA is is where we left that. Um, but I do think that the more common these private agreements become among the big players, the more likely it's going to be that the needle's going to move toward greater obligations across the whole internet. Right. right, and that'll include small players with fewer resources. And I think we've seen this with Content ID. Yeah, totally. On YouTube, right? So Google voluntarily implemented Content ID under pressure from copyright holders. That was like two thousand and eight. Right. So here we are pretty much 10 years later. Yep. Uh, Content ID cost Google something like 60 million dollars to build. Right. Which Google yep. could spend because Google is rich. Right. Um, right. But now what we're seeing uh, is in the EU. Right. It, as part of the, the copyright directive in the digital single market platform yep. consultation uh, is movement to require a system like Content ID for every website. Yep. Uh, that that displays and promotes, and I think the language in Article 13 is large amounts of user-generated yeah. <laughs> content, right? Like, I have no idea what a large amount of user-generated content is. It's an I know it when I see it kind of. Right, exactly, <laughs> yeah. right? But that's that's a really heavy lift if you're yeah. talking about for uh, a startup. And remember, we're not just talking about music and movies here. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about photos and books and pretty much everything else that's copyrighted. Yep. Right? Uh, and so... You know, these agreements aren't democratically made public law, but we're seeing that they do have the potential to shift public law standards in ways that end up entrenching the giants, right? Who, yep. who like Google, can afford to drop $6 million on a bespoke copyright filtering system. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. But, you know, we're seeing just more barriers to entry for new entrants, and, and already they face huge barriers from network effects and user lock in on the big platforms, right? So everybody's all freaked out now about how there's so much concentration at the edge and how Facebook and Google are, you know, preventing any innovation at the edge. But if we begin sort of piling on these demands for expensive filtering systems, that situation is going to get worse and not better. Yeah. Yeah. And it is an interesting point, just this idea that, you know, what becomes the, the norm for certain platforms and often the large platforms then is, is used to sort of um, yeah, I mean, one, to write it into the laws, as we're seeing with the EU directive. But I also have seen in a, in a few cases, and, and forgive me because I can't remember exact instances of where it is, um, but like it, it comes up in court cases, too, in some cases where people will say, well, you know, 
you know, look to sort of meet your responsibility. These other platforms do X, Y, and Z, you know, content ID kind of stuff or whatever. Therefore, you know, these platforms should too, because that is like the industry standard or, or whatever. Um, and so, you know, it sort of sneaks into law in, in sort of uh, ways that are unexpected and, and perhaps undemocratic. Right. And of course, I think have not been too willing to sort of buy, uh, to buy into that, right? But increasingly, you see that what happens is during litigation, uh, some of these platforms are, you know, end up implementing these systems, even though they're not legally required. So for instance, right. uh, I can't remember, was it um, Capital Records that was suing Vimeo? It was a, a consortium, yeah, it was it all of the way, it was a capital. Yeah. Um, so during the Vimeo litigation, which ran for, you know, like, I don't know, five or six or seven years or something but in the you know and vimeo won that litigation it went up on appeal to the second circuit and vimeo won in the second circuit they had won in the district court i think in the southern district of new york you know but in the in the con in in sort of the course of that litigation vimeo adopted basically a content id type system right and now i think what is going on or what i'm hearing is that you know um sites are being approached by RAAA and MPAA uh, and, and, and sort of told, look, you know, we won't sue you if you do this. Right. Right. So it's sort of like, you know, <laughs> if, if you adopt a filtering system, you know, we'll, we'll kind of lay off of you. So it, it becomes a kind of, um, I don't know, like a, a little bit of a hammer or something that they, they hold over the heads right. of startups, right? Because, because startups can't really afford to be involved in 10 year litigation, right? These are companies right. that need venture capital to survive. Venture capitalists don't like litigation and risk. Yeah. You and know? I mean, you know, the, the, the parallel story, and by the way, I mean, the, the Vimeo uh, litigation is actually still ongoing and there are different pieces of it, um, but it's not completely over. Yeah, I mean, Vimeo has mostly won, but yes, it's been sort of this, this uh, I think, yeah, at least, uh, what is, I'm actually looking it up as we speak. I'm trying so to think, I'm is, like, what is left of the Vimeo litigation? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a nine-year process, so uh, I'm just scanning this. I, I wrote an article about it just in April of this year um, about the latest. Um, uh, I, I would have to sort of dig into what it is, but there are still pieces of the case that are still going. Right, I mean, just write a lesson <laughs> in just how long it takes and how expensive it is. And right. then you have in the Ninth Circuit the example of Vio. Right, I was about right, to say, it's, it's sort of like the, gonna... the, the counterfactual, right? Where, where Vio was, uh, for people who don't know, right, Vio was another sort of similar Vimeo YouTube-like platform that was sued and went out of business. But I mean, though... interestingly, they, they were sort of, at the time, they were poised to be like a serious, I think, competitor for YouTube because yeah. the, the yeah. YouTube and Vio suits were filed you know, in the second and ninth circuits, like very close in time to each other, like 2007, I think both of those cases, and they sort of went up through the courts together. Yes. And you could kind of see, um, you know, YouTube, which uh, sort of got bought by Google, right as that litigation was taking off, mm -hmm. right, you could see YouTube sort of be able to afford to do all of the litigation that was going on in the second circuit. Um, because they had Google's money bags, right? right? And then you had Vio that didn't survive the litigation, right? Even though it ended up winning in right. the Ninth Circuit, it was it was basically defunct and out of business by the time uh, the final judgment in that case was. Yeah, uh, and that's that's an, a, a really important point that that should be reinforced. I mean, they won their case, but but Vio doesn't exist because they went out of business because of the expenses of the case. Yeah. So now, you know, we're seeing, you know, now there's this track record of this happening and companies know that you can't really survive, you know, this kind of protracted litigation, right, over the scope of the DMCA safe harbors. Right. Uh, and, and so, you know, if somebody comes along and says, hey, you know, nice startup you have there would be a shame if you <laughs> couldn't ever grow it. I've got some content filters to right. uh, license to you uh, or whatever. <laughs> You know, it just seems, you know, they, they, you know, it, it's reaching the point where now as a business proposition, you know, it, it just seems a path of less resistance to try to adopt a system like Content ID, you know, right. um, and there is Audible Magic is a big vendor that sort of uh, licenses a system like that uh, to 
two websites, right? And so there, right. there is a provider other than YouTube in this space, but the filtering space is a super, super concentrated space too, right? Yeah. And so really what's going on in the EU is if the EU ends up, you know, uh, passing Article 13 and having that filtering requirement, they are essentially, you know, funneling zillions of dollars of business to Audible Magic. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I, I've seen someone refer to it as like the Full Employment for Audible Magic Act. <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> and so it's, a, you know, but then, you know, when you come back to the other side of the equation, just getting back to like this question about how small players are impacted by these agreements, yeah. right? So we, we sort of know, you know, how the, the small internet providers are impacted. But, you know, the other thing is the small copyright and trademark holders are impacted too because these agreements you know are, are pretty much agreements that are for the big players right by the big players right and so um you know they're designed to put a lot of trust in whoever sends these notices right um mm -hmm. that's good from the perspective of not getting a lot of abusive notices coming in from a zillion different people right but they also kind of set up a class system right whereby companies like Sony and Nike and Fox get better enforcement. Right. Right. Than independent and small artists because they get to take part, like they would benefit from public law. If there was public law, like small artists can, can use the notice and takedown system. Yeah. Right. They complain about it for good reasons and bad ones um, about why it doesn't work for them, you know, but they are covered by it. Right. They are protected by, uh, the public law, they are not covered by these voluntary agreements, right? So they right. don't get access to the online portals where members of the IACC can submit their complaints. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, I would say they kind of set up a class system where you have, you know, corporate players buying better enforcement. <laughs> Which is, yeah, an interesting way to look at it, but, but, but very accurate. Yeah. Um, that's that's annoying. Um, <laughs> getting back, you know, there were, I, I mentioned this earlier, and I don't think we actually uh, dove in on the specific question of, of due process for end users. We've been talking sort of about the impact for, for platforms and for, for copyright or trademark holders. But for, for end users, I think there's there's concern about the, the lack of due process uh, if, if things are being taken down. Right. So it depends kind of like different, these different agreements have kind of different end users. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, at the end of the day, people who surf the internet and explore internet websites and want to do e-commerce, like people like you and me uh, are end users. Right. But right. for many of these agreements, like the agreements between the uh, domain name registries and right holders, right. The people most immediately affected are domain name registrants. So they're the website right. operators, right? So they are the people whose due process we would worry about, right? Because they're the ones, you know, who will lose access to their website, right? right. And then users down the line will, of course, derivatively lose access to that website, which <laughs> right. no longer exists on the web, right? And so in terms of like due process for the folks who's, you know, who are using the payment providers and for domain name registrants, um, you know, based on past agreements that I've seen, um, what happens is that, you know, these agreements adopt a notice and action protocol, mm -hmm. right, um, that allows, uh, you know, people who are parties to them uh, to submit notices of copyright or trademark infringement to the provider, right, to the domain name provider. Um, or to the, um, you know, to the payment processor. And when they receive a notice, uh, the intermediary agrees to do some kind of cursory investigation, uh, after which basically it will lock or otherwise disable the domain name, right? Mm -hmm. So in terms of due process, I don't think it's clear what right, if any, domain name registrants or, uh, you know, the, the people who are accessing payment services who would be the domain name registrants right. uh, have to contest the notices, right? It's, it's unclear what the extent of the required investigation is, assuming that an investigation is required at all, right? Which it is in the uh, payment processor agreement. And I think in the ad network agreement, um, I don't know about the, the new uh, agreement for .eu. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then it's also unclear how long registrants get to prove their innocence, assuming they get to try to do that at all. 
right? right. And, and often, you know, in these agreements, the providers agree to a really quick turnaround on the notice, like five days or something, mm -hmm. um, you know, which isn't a lot of time um, if you're a, a domain name registrant to sort of get all of your ducks in a row and be prepared to make a case that you are not infringing. Right. Right. To, whatever to save, that save your entire site or business or whatever. Right. Right. Because whatever the details, the benefit of the doubt in these agreements always runs to the notice sender. Right? right. And the burden of proof is on the accused. And, you know, as you know, that reverses the burden that we have in civil litigation. Yeah. Right. To satisfy due process, we always put the burden on the complaint. Right. Right. To, to basically the... prove that 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 the law has been violated. Right. Right. So that's a that's a plaintiff's burden in litigation. Right. It's sort of the. It's sort of the defendant's burden, if you will, um, in these cases where we're talking about notice and takedown. Right. You know, and so that's a, you know, and, and there is a certain amount of efficiency in that, which is a good thing. And in some ways, these agreements exist to sort of address the fact that litigation is time consuming and costly and all of that, you know, but at the same time, you know, I would be a lot more comfortable if there were better protections in place for uh, you know, the people whose, uh, whose sites are impacted, you know, and going back to the copyright alert system, right. And mm -hmm. the, the, the graduated response six strikes MOU. I mean, there, there was a really highly structured right of appeal. Right. That the broadband subscriber had, and it was to like a, a neutral third party, right. They had a whole group of arbitrators set up mm -hmm. through the American arbitration association who were sort of trained to handle these copyright complaints. You know, and I don't think we ever got any really great information beyond the first year that program operated about how many people were filing appeals and how many notices were sent and all of that. Right. But at least you could see that they, you know, they had bothered to think about what would happen if there were mistakes. Right. And what would happen if you didn't agree with the determination that the provider made. Right. Right. And so in a lot of ways, it's it's you know, it's a shame to see that the only one of these agreements that really seem to try hard. To sort of honor values like transparency and due process is the one that is no longer operational. <laughs> that, that just sort of collapsed and disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is interesting. Now, another thing that that's come up in, in this is, you know, when when you're sort of putting the enforcement um, responsibility onto these companies um, and and many of these companies I think like you know Google um, certainly Facebook uh, perhaps to a slightly lesser extent I mean they sort of recognize that there are people who abuse these systems to take down content they don't like and therefore they have set up processes to actually to, to do a more serious review or you know slight investigation before they're willing to sort of take stuff down i worry when you're talking about you know registrars and payment processors and ad networks um how much they're even aware that that abuse is there or if they just kind of assume that that the uh, you know takedown notice or complaint notice must be legit um and and how sort of ready they are to actually deal with the fact that these these systems can and have been abused Right. Well, I think they rely a lot on sort of the exclusivity of the agreements and mm -hmm. the sophistication of the parties to sort out abuse. Right. And, and you know, if you listen to what the RAAA and the MPAA say, they will always say, look, you know, we're really only targeting the worst of the worst. You know, if there are any cases where we think it's a close call, we're not going to send the notice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there is, you know, uh, the whole system is really predicated on trust, right? The agreements are called trusted notifier agreements. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in Google search, they have certain, you know, trusted parties who, you know, can submit bulk requests for takedown. Right. Um, you know, and so all of these systems are sort of like, we're going to single out a category of right holders who we feel comfortable will not abuse the system. Right. They're sophisticated actors. They understand legally what's involved. They've got skin in the game, you know, in terms of, of needing to have these kinds of good relationships with providers who are basically going above and beyond what the law requires them to do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think that, you know, they they are willing to accord these notices uh, a, a presumption of validity and correctness and legitimacy 
you know, because they trust the sender, right? And so you can see it's kind of double-edged, right? Because the idea of, ideally, you would want these systems to be available for smaller right holders too. Right. Right. Uh, to avoid that kind of class system that gets set up where, you know, rich corporations can afford to buy better enforcement. But at the same time, the more widely you open up these programs to sort of rank and file right holders, right, and individuals, the more likely you are to get people who don't really understand what copyright means and who don't really understand what fair use is. Right. Um, right. So the, the, the more the more sort of widely available these systems are, the more subject to abuse they become, both intentional abuse, right, by people who just want to gain the system to get content they don't like taken down, you right. know, but also I think kind of just mistakes about, you know, right holders who are naive about the extent of the rights they have. <laughs> yes, which happens. Right? Which happens. Sem and, you know, frequently. Yeah. And so, but we've just seen, for example, yesterday, I think, or two days ago, um, that Google has uh, sort of uh, begun to pilot like a content ID light program mm -hmm. uh, that it's calling Copyright Match. Mm. Um, and I think that they are rolling that out now for um, channel owners who have like more than 100,000 followers. Um, and that that's a kind of sort of content ID ish system. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and they are trying to sort of make it more widely available. And the plan is that they're going to roll it out further, I guess, after some kind of pilot, uh, period. Mm -hmm. Um, but so at least, you know, on YouTube, you see an effort is being made to sort of address the kind of class inequality <laughs> right. that you have in systems like content ID, you know, which have historically just been open to, to, to record labels and music publishers and, and trade groups and corporate right. holders. Yeah. You, and know, I mean, you can also see in the hesitation that YouTube is doing, like, for instance, you can only, they will only do like verbatim matches of whole videos. Right. Right. As a way of kind of protecting fair use. So you don't get to say, well, they use five seconds of my song right? and I want you to take it down. Right. So um, they're limiting it to sort of whole copies. And oh. also you have to be the first person to have uploaded the video to be able to kind of claim it. Right. Which is, which a, is a, a, another <laughs> kind of abuse prevention mechanism, right? Because yeah. Because we, that's, that's been abused a bunch of times. In a bunch yeah, of no, ways. right. We see a lot of times where people just claim stuff uh, that, that isn't theirs. Uh, right. They do it through the DMCA process, you know, and I think Google uh, or YouTube just wants to be very sort of careful in rolling out this program to structure it in a way that sort of limits opportunities for mistake and abuse. And it'll be interesting to watch sort of how this unfolds and how it works. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so as kind of to, to, I guess, sort of wrap up this conversation, um, seeing how all of these agreements are happening and they're sort of happening behind the scenes and, um, you know, in, in very dark ways, <laughs> even though there may be some involvement of, you know, of government sort of pressuring the, the agreements to come into place. I'm sort of wondering what are the sort of policy implications for, you know, for the government in terms of, you know, understanding these agreements and, and you know, whether or not they should be comfortable with them happening. Yeah. So we talk a lot about the influence of dark money, right, on democracy and the political process. And I kind of think of these agreements as a form of dark law, right? So they're passed along to the public. It's a, a good, good analogy. I like that. Yeah. I mean, they're passed along to the public through these contractual terms of service, right? The public can't negotiate terms of service. Pretty much right. you click, I agree, and you're bound to whatever the provider tells you you're bound to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but the public doesn't really know what they entail, right? So your terms of service say you can't use this service to infringe copyrights. Right? right. But they don't tell you that there is a, a trusted notifier agreement between your provider and, you know, corporate right holders that allows corporate right holders to just say your material is infringing. Right. right. And the terms of service will generally say it's in the provider's discretion to determine whether material is infringing or not. Yeah. Right. And, and so, you know, you're not supposed to infringe copyrights because that's in your terms of service, but you have no idea there are all of these like collateral agreements that are affecting your rights <laughs> that have been agreed to, you know, that you've had nothing to do with. Right. And so 
you know, people are like, well, they're private agreements, right? Like, you uh -huh. don't ask to see other people's contracts. That's not right, you know? And I said, well, you know, they're private agreements between private corporations, but they have huge and pretty direct public impact. Yeah. Right. And so these aren't your typical sort of business to business contracts. Yeah. Right. Like people are like, well, this is just self-regulation. This is just the industry regulating itself. And it's like, well, no, it's the industry regulating everybody else <laughs> <laughs> Right. at the same time as it's regulating itself. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's the that's the that's just the weird nature of these situations where you know, you have these highly intermediated relationships, um, which is sort of the nature of the internet, right? So the problem is that these companies are self-regulating, but they're doing it in a way uh, that really translates into public regulation, right? And yeah. I think we expect that kind of regulation to be democratic. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it does raise a bunch of troubling issues. I mean, because, you know, like... I could see where it would be very problematic if you want the the government to actually get involved in in, in terms of you know private contracts and, and agreements that could create all sorts of other uh, <laughs> consequences that we wouldn't necessarily like. But you know, as I think I've expressed throughout this entire podcast, like these agreements do seem to be problematic, uh, and just in terms of their impact and the fact that that we don't fully understand them, we can't. You know, we can't even see some of them or or understand really what they're doing, and yet they impact so much of the way the internet itself works. Um, that's that's troubling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's just important for you know for people to kind of realize what's going on and stay on top of it. But you know, for me yeah. as an academic and as somebody who does research, uh, it's just been kind of hard to lose access or to not get access to these agreements and to see them becoming increasingly over time less available. Yeah. Right. And I think it's because they're like, oh, that bridey, she's going to ask for the agreement and then say nasty things about us in a law <laughs> review article. You know, but if they're really best practices, I think you should be willing to put them out there. Right. And yeah. the other thing that these folks could do would be to try to involve different sets of stakeholders as these agreements are being negotiated. Yeah. You know, uh, who will then not necessarily be dis surprised and dismayed when they right. get a hold of the agreements and see that they're really you know, lacking in due process, which, you know, again, to, to give them credit, that's, that is what the, uh, the, uh, copyright alert system did. I mean, they sort of, they knew that they were going to get hammered. And so they sort of bent over backwards to try and involve a lot of people. You know, in the I gotta say like at the time I thought they were being very withholding and I was, you know, <laughs> not happy about that. And yeah. now I look back, I'm like all misty about that and nostalgic, <laughs> you know, I was like, God, they were so transparent and they cared so much about due process. And to think that that was the high water mark, yeah. <laughs> you know, is, is a little distressing, but I yeah. do, you know, I do, uh, and have always said, uh, that that the parties that negotiated that agreement were, I think, really operating in good faith with right. a regard for the public that I have not since seen. Right. Hi. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's something you said earlier in the podcast, which has just been sticking in my head, which is basically the idea that we, we sort of have enacted SOPA uh, as this kind of dark law without any anyone even realizing it. Um, and that is, um, is is probably accurate, but but somewhat distressing. <laughs> yeah, no, I I agree. You know, and there was just all of that. Well, at the time, you know, uh, folks in the right holder community were so cynical about that whole process, right? And they yeah. said, you know, oh, that was just the public being misled by Google and. You know, right. we've already seen it with with what happened with Article 13, you know, a couple yep. uh, last week. Right. Like it, it went down amidst a flurry of public outcry. Right. Yep. Uh, An outcry from academics and all kinds of public interest groups and like immediately and like the, the, and narrative. The, the people who built the Internet themselves. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Like Tim Berners-Lee and all right. these people. And like immediately the narrative in the press was, you know, Google defeats, you know, Google right. lobbying money defeats copyright law in the eu and it was really you know it's just interesting to see this narrative play out again yeah uh, and here it's like what eight years later or seven years later yeah 
right? And there are people who still believe that the only reason that these kinds of bills are defeated is that Google has somehow bought the this the democratic process when really yeah. I think what's going on is a much more serious grassroots yeah an authentic grassroots movement yeah it, it is fairly incredible i mean i actually remember you know going back you know six and a half years now like right after sopa failed um through a a very uh odd set of circumstances <laughs> i ended up at, at dinner with a uh board member um who just was going nuts about how it was all google that took down sopa and i was just like like i i know what happened that's not true <laughs> and it just it was you know could not comprehend that it wasn't just purely a google lobbying play um and it, it seems like they 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 just think that that how could anyone how could the public possibly think this way um you know and and with with the article 13 thing you know i saw a a uh, former uh, uh riaa uh vp was was going nuts on on twitter saying like well this is clearly not you know the public has not been heard the public you know this is not representing the public in public's interest and i was just like you know look at what the the riaa did for decades in terms of pushing through different laws and you know using secretive backroom deals in in international treaties the idea that that you're suddenly the representative of the public interest is is completely ridiculous um but you know it's it's this narrative and they've sort of really you know they really want to push that narrative right now um, i mean if i had a nickel for every time i got called a google shill on twitter yeah, right <laughs> right yeah. uh, i'd be a wealthy woman yes me too me too um, yeah. and it's just you know it's it's just unfortunate because it's it it just reveals a kind of unwillingness to see things otherwise than in terms of sort of a clash of corporate titans right and yeah you never see folks on from the music industry talking about all the lobbying money they spent right right because the ifpi and the riaa have been lobbying on these value gap issues yeah for years right yep. and it's not like they don't have an army of lobbyists in brussels and in washington and everywhere else it's like now they're outraged that google has lobbyists it's like <laughs> well you know yeah. of course they do you know and they can spend more money than you do and you know it's unfortunate that who spends the most money seems to have become sort of you know in some ways almost decisive in these policy debates you know but it's not always about who spends the most money yeah yeah and and certainly you know the amount of protests and people speaking up you know that is not that's not something that you get uh a corporation can fake right <laughs> i mean right. The, the the public uh who loves the internet and wants it to remain workable in a in a way that they can do what they like to do on the internet you know that that's a powerful constituent and the idea of reducing that to just like you know a couple of internet companies and their lobbying money, I think is um, cynical and incredibly unfair. Yeah, no, it is. And I think it's just, a, it's, it's completely sort of misreads and is out of touch with how the public feels about the internet, you know, yeah. and, and the kind of protectiveness that people feel about the internet, because yeah. for as problematic as it has become in a lot of ways, you know, and we talked about that sure. on the last podcast. Yep. Um, you know, it is still a pretty amazing thing, you know, and I think its openness still needs to be protected. And I think the public believes that. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right. Well, I have uh, taken enough of your time, but um, Emery, thank you so much. This is, uh, as expected, another wonderful conversation and really interesting topic. Uh, thank you for taking the time. And um, thanks to everyone for listening and uh, joining us. And uh, we'll be back next week with another podcast. Thanks. Thanks.